Uh, we've been thinking already about what it means to be a healthy church. Last week, we uh, said that the first mark of a healthy church, well, the, the most foundational mark really, was the whole issue of preaching. And um, if you didn't catch that, you can um, uh, hear it and uh, read about it online on our website. But when you stop and think about it, it, it is an unusual mark, that, isn't it? The first mark of a healthy church is preaching because it really depends on the content, doesn't it? Um, it depends on the content. Um, Mark Dever, uh, whose book we're basing loosely some of our thoughts on, tells the story of being in a seminar where he said something about God and one of the other people in the group uh, replied to him very politely but quite definitely that he didn't really see things that way. And this chap then spent a few minutes elaborating on what he thought God was like as compared to what Mark Dever had just said. He said that he liked to think of God being wise but not meddling, compassionate but never overpowering, resourceful but never interrupting. And after his little speech he concluded with the statement, that is how I like to think of God. Now Mark Dever is an extremely gracious man and I think only he could get away with a comment like that. He risked being accused of being a bit rude as he said, Thank you for telling us all about yourself. But what we're trying to find out is what God is like, not what we would like him to be, or what we think he's like, or, or some words to that effect. Well, they got on track and World War III didn't break out and they didn't murder each other. But the little story there illustrates, doesn't it, a few things that we could possibly summarise as questions. So here they are. First of all, what do you think? God is like. If you were that man in the seminar with Mark Dever, what would you preface with the statement, there you go, that's what I think God is like. I think secondly, it reveals something about our culture. Um, I think this whole episode possibly makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. How can you know anything for sure? Who does this man Mark Dever think he is to be so confident and therefore rude to this fellow who has obviously got a different opinion? Does he believe that he's the only one who knows what God's like? What about others who have different opinions? Is he saying that people who don't agree with him are wrong? You kind of get the idea. I think thirdly, it immediately makes me think about the contrast in the Bible itself. How do you reconcile gentle Jesus, meek and mild with him turning tables over in the temple and cracking a whip and stronger still how do you reconcile the God of Christmas and happy shepherds and we might say the ickle baby Jesus with the God of judgment and wrath and the reality of hell and fourthly we might say, how relevant is this question anyway? Most of the world's religious and nobody can agree. Even people who claim they know the truth can't agree on all the details. And those who claim to be the most moral are obviously often the ones who fall the furthest because they're just like the rest of us or worse. If you want to follow good, God, good luck to you. 
That's nice for you, but don't tell me I should follow your God as well. Often people seem to want to take a little bit of everything, don't they? I've heard people say to me, I like some of the teachings of Buddhism. I, I sit on a committee that teaches RE, and there was, I remember one chap talking about, the, he, he knew all about religions, he taught RE, and he said, I like a little bit of this, and I like a little bit of Hinduism. We might even say, you know, my grand, she had some great pearls of wisdom, and I try to live by some of the little pithy proverbs that she, and what, what, what we end up with is a kind of belief system that is very much our own. That's the trend today, isn't it? That everyone believes what they want to believe. And if it works for them, that's okay. It's all about individual freedom, isn't it? Choice. It's not always been the case. But our modern culture is very good at rejecting any objective, external truth that is out there and replacing it with a kind of subjective, internal truth that's in here. And if you believe in something absolute, you'll be labelled narrow-minded, bigoted, arrogant. Our culture will jump very heavily on anyone who says that there are absolutes. It's almost the worst kind of intolerant crime, isn't it? We can be tolerant of anything except someone who appears to be intolerant. But no one can really live like that. We can demonstrate the nonsense of it quite easily, can't we? If you believe that there is no big story, how do you know that that idea is right? Because that's a big story, isn't it? If you stand up and say, I absolutely know that there are no absolutes, or I'm absolutely certain that I can't be certain about anything, but how can you be absolutely sure? If there are no absolutes, you can't be sure that there are no absolutes. There might be. Life is a nonsense. It's completely meaningless philosophically. And Why, why is it that our modern culture thinks like that? I, I, I think part of the reason, part of the reason, and it's not necessarily a bad reason, is that there's an assumption of power being abused. Um, we, we, we lived through um, some great um, historical periods and um, there, were, there was a great sense of people arriving at utopia at the end of the 1800s into the 1900s we, all the industrial revolution and what's happened in the 1900s it has been the bloodiest century in history two world wars famine poverty the gap between rich and poor growing and widening and all the kind of big ideas that were there at the beginning of the century have, have been shown to be in, in, in many ways, empty. And so the assumption is, if anyone has got a big story who tries to pin that on me, they must be trying to abuse me in some way. There's a very famous philosopher called Sir Karl Popper, who lived in the 1900s. He died in 1994, aged 92. Almost lived the whole century. He wrote a very famous book in the 1940s called The Open Society and Its Enemies in which he argued that history has no meaning at all. And he genuinely believed that history was dangerous. And he speaks with some authority because he had dabbled in Marxism in the 1920s. And as a Jewish man, he later fled Austria when the Nazis were coming to power. 
And his view in his book that he wrote, 1945 it was published, was that all of these political movements justified their abuses by appealing to history. So he felt that when these guys used history to justify the bad things they were doing, it is safer to say that history has no meaning. And it's a very um, influential book. He wrote, just for those of you interested, he wrote this line in the same book. Just get that, 1945 this. We should therefore claim, in the name of tolerance, the right not to tolerate the intolerant. 1945. Very prophetic. Now, there's some truth in that. Intolerance isn't a good thing. But our culture has moved on and now sees anyone who believes in an overarching big story as intolerant. And this is the cry of our culture, isn't it? All big stories are designed to oppress me. So I'm going to be suspicious. I'm going to be very careful. The problem for me in this modern culture is that if everyone is just trying to oppress me, how can I know that you're telling me the truth? You just might be trying to get one over on me. And that's the kind of culture we live in, isn't it? Cynical, meaningless. Do you know what the irony of all this is? That the whole story of the Bible, from beginning to end, is one of liberation and not oppression. The whole Bible story is about being set free from slavery, misery, darkness, and and being led out into the light and hope and life of present and future glory. Well, enough uh, philosophical chit-chat. Let me... um, This is the question, isn't it? I'm not here to talk about philosophy all day. I'm saying all this to introduce my subject for today. We're thinking about what makes a healthy church, and I submit to you that a healthy church is not based on speculation as to what we think God is like, but it is based on the revelation that God has given to us in the Bible, his self-revelation and self-disclosure. This is a field where it isn't appropriate to guess, speculate and believe whatever we feel like believing. The great good news of the Bible is that God has spoken and revealed himself to us. And one of the reasons I say it's good news is that, is is this not what our culture actually needs? Far from this being oppressive, what is actually oppressive is wandering around in the dark, every man for himself, trying to guess all the time. When we push God out of our lives, when in actual fact, he is speaking to us, calling us, giving us truth that's clear, life-giving, soul-refreshing, liberating, In a confused culture, we need nothing more than to hear God speak into our darkness and lift us out of ourselves. Last week, we were thinking about preaching. And this week, I want to extend that by talking about content. And after all, any preacher can preach a load of nonsense. He's just making it up. And here's the thing. You're all sitting here listening to me today. Do you ever stop and think about what we're doing when we come to church? As we sing the songs, do you think about the words? When we're learning together what the Bible's teaching us, are you asking yourself, is this true? 
Does it matter? How does what you believe relate to your life? Is this just a habit? Are you guessing what God is like or are you grappling with what God says about himself? So the second mark of a healthy church, first mark preaching, the second mark is really having a biblical concept of God. I'm taking it as read that we believe the Bible is God's word. We've dealt with that on other occasions. Today we have a few minutes to pick up on some major biblical themes that form part of God's self-disclosure to us. I've got five things. And uh, these are, these are based uh, loosely on Mark Devers' uh, points. First of all then, the God of the Bible is a creating God. Um, it was really interesting this week. Some of us were up in Leeds listening to uh, an Australian man called Philip Jensen. And he was speaking very much about the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? And it was fascinating to him speak about how meaning evaporates when you exclude God. What gives life meaning is the fact that God created it all. Life is not a random accident. If it is a random accident, then nothing really matters. But no one can really live like that. And Jensen was pointing out that we make value judgments all the time, don't we? This is good. This is bad. This thing is better than this thing. But that kind of language makes no sense if there is no meaning. But there can't be any real meaning if we're just here by random accident. The Bible begins with a statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think lots of people can think that the Bible is just a book of random ethics. Um, sometimes I talk to people and they say, yeah, I think the Bible is just a book of rules. And, and you begin to realise that they've never read it. They've imbibed most of what they think from inaccurate media, really. I've done some recruiting of staff over the years and it's very tedious reading through CVs trying to get a sense of what a person is really like. Would this person really fit? Would they do a good job? And there are two ways to find out a bit more. One is to take references from someone who knows them and the other is to invite them to an interview and see them in action, isn't it? Um, one of the worst interviews I ever had with British Coal when I left university, we had to do a three-day interview where there were, I think there were about 40 of us and they split us into teams and we spent three days doing all sorts of different games and activities while there were people watching us, taking notes and then they told us at the end whether we'd uh, got a job or not. Three-day interview. Very stressful. Well, the Bible is not just a CV where God gives us a list of skills or ideas about himself. The Bible is really the record of God doing things in history. What is God like? How does he react? What does he want? What will he do? How is it possible for us to live with him? And the whole Bible is full of history. It is earthy, grounded in real people, real countries, real issues. And the reason that God has grounded the revelation of himself in history 
is so that we might know what he's really like. And one of the things that we learned, we were thinking about this a little bit more last week, is that God creates in two ways. First of all, we see in the Bible that he creates things, the created world and the life within it, this vast universe. But he also creates, in a different sense, a special people who are his own precious people. Biblically, God is the creator. We are not to make him in our image. He has made us in his image. We can't think something before God thought it. He is the one who creates and calls and gives and initiates. Without him, nothing could exist and all things hold together because he is the supreme first cause. He always was, he always is and he always will be. God is the great initiator, the great giver, the great creator, the great author of life. Secondly, the God of the Bible is a holy God. That's an odd word, that, isn't it? The word holy. Well, we, we kind of have a vague sense that it's something religious, don't we? The word holy. What does holy mean? I think um, there's, a, there's a lot of ideas in the word holy. One of the ideas is the idea of holiness has within it the idea of uniqueness. Something that is in a class all by itself. Something that is set apart as very special. Sometimes the word holy in the Old Testament particularly has got the idea of being set apart for a specific use. So in the Old Testament you read a lot, this thing was holy unto the Lord. In other words, it was set apart for, for serving God. It was holy, it was unique, it was special. When Jesus uh, prayed in the Gospels, well, he taught the Lord's Prayer to his disciples, he said, Hallowed be your name. In other words, may your name be set apart in a class all by itself, honoured, reverenced, admired and cherished. There is no one like you. You are altogether different. That's the sense of the word holy. In the Bible, when creatures are said to have been in the presence of God, they cover their eyes and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I think the word holy also has the idea within it of moral purity, doesn't it? From the very beginning of the Bible we see that God is not a selfish, tyrant, brutish, but he's filled with all the superior qualities that we admire, clean and truthful, pure in his motive and action, faithful and right. And we see in the Bible that God is not morally indifferent either. I always think in Genesis, it's really interesting when God gives the creation account to Moses. And all the way through it says, God said, and there was. And all the way through it says, God saw all that he'd made, and it was good. Can you imagine that? God standing back from what he's made and going, with his clipboard or, I don't know, marking things. And God's saying, that's really, really great, that is. That is awesome. 
God makes value judgments. Isn't that incredible? God is not indifferent to his creation. He looks out on things and he weighs things up. He sees things and he decides, is that good or bad? We do it as well, don't we? Because we've been made in God's image. He is not morally indifferent. The God of the Bible is shown again and again and again to be a God who sees and weighs and considers the true value of things. He looks at things from every conceivable angle and decides whether it's good or bad, consistent with his goodness. And I think it should be a great comfort to us in a chaotic, sin-spoiled world that our creator God is passionate about holiness. The ultimate foundation of all things, really, is that our creator is utterly joyful and overflowingly committed to what is good and right and true. We've seen before that morality is not a random collection of commands that seemed right to God on a certain day. God just thought, yeah, I'll just kind of make up some commands today, they feel good, I might change tomorrow. No, morality is grounded in God's rightness. The reason that he gives us ten commandments is because those commandments are what he's like. They're not just random, arbitrary laws and rules. Things in this world are right or wrong, ultimately because of what he's like. Isn't that an encouragement to us? Now, we have to realise, don't we, that this is a massive problem for us. Do you see that? The problem, that the greatest problem really that we have is that we're not holy. We're all sinners, every one of us. How can we relate to this God who is holy and set apart in a class all by himself, morally pure, utterly good, the eternal creator There was a man called Thomas Binney in the 1700s. He, um, I think he was an MP for a while. He, he was part of all the slavery uh, abolishment campaigns that were going on. But I think what he's most famous for in church circles is that he wrote a hymn. And uh, I should have put it up on the screen, but listen to these words. Eternal light, eternal light. How pure the soul must be. When placed within thy searching sight, it shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. How, how shall I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear that uncreated beam? How on earth are we going to be able to relate to this God. The great liberating message of the whole Bible is that God has found a way to reconcile sinful people like us to him, a holy God. And the history is important, isn't it? God called, we were thinking last week, God calls Abraham, one pagan man. And from this man, a whole race of people comes into being. And how does God relate to them? 
Well, in the Old Testament, God establishes the principle over and over again that they cannot come near to him without sacrifices being made. God was teaching them powerfully that sin defiles and brings death. It separates them from a holy God and brings his condemnation on them. And the way for them to be reconciled is for another to die the death that they deserve. These are God's people and every day of the year they're reminded that they cannot come near to God except by sacrifice that would deal with their sin. And you wonder, is it any different for us now? Are we any better than them? Is God less holy now than he was in the Old Testament? Well, no, of course not. What it all points to is ultimately Jesus, isn't it? As the great sacrifice animals couldn't really atone for human sin but God was teaching them a principle and preparing them for Jesus the son of God coming into the world and laying down his life as a sacrifice for sinners Thomas Binney answered his own question biblically he said this in the same hymn there is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode an offering and a sacrifice a holy spirit's energy an advocate with God These, these prepare us for the side of holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night may dwell in the eternal light through the eternal love. Well, what makes a healthy church? Well, it certainly depends, doesn't it, on how you view God and human nature. If you think that human nature is basically good and just needs a little bit of encouragement then you'll relate to God that way. And it all becomes about self-esteem and trying the best to, to bring the best out of each other, doesn't it? But if you believe that God is holy and that human nature is essentially sinful and rebellious and desperately in need of saving, you'll relate to God very differently, won't you? Now it will be all about what God has done to reconcile us to himself. So there's to God the great creator and God is holy. Let's uh, look at number three. The God of the Bible is a faithful God. I think um, one of the really helpful ways to view human history is in two parallel lines. And uh, those two, two parallel lines, first of all, the first line is a huge problem. The very beginning of human history speaks of a huge problem. Our sin bringing a curse and separating us from God. It's a huge problem that runs all the way through human history. Adam and Eve excluded from the paradise they've known. And it's been an awful reality that the humanity has been marred by guilt, a sense of separation from God, the fear of condemnation. But the other line if there's one line called promise the other line uh, called, called problem the other line is called promise right after Adam and Eve fell God promises right there in the garden of Eden that evil will not prevail someone would one day be born who would crush the serpent and restore what had been broken every time Eve had a child she must have wondered Is this the one? 
he's going to restore what's broken and crush the serpent. What a letdown it must have been when one of them killed the other. Highlighting the problem. But the promise remained. This is the Bible story. A problem and a promise. It's an amazing passage right back in the Old Testament where God reveals himself to Moses. And he says something that seems like a great paradox. Maybe we could just turn to um, Exodus chapter 34. Let me give you a page number. Exodus Exodus 34. Um, and that page 93. Moses is uh, going up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And in verse 5, uh, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. What's God doing? He's telling Moses who he is you know when you, when you go to a party and you meet someone what's the first thing you do my name's Ian, pleased to meet you what's your name I was meeting a fellow the other day in business a solicitor and his name was Trevor Ironmonger Trevor Ironmonger what a name for a solicitor I want to say to him hi my name's Ian Curtainmaker but I, I, didn't, I, was, I didn't want to be so rude I didn't really know him but Trevor Ironmonger. I wonder what his great, 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 great grandfather did. I hope he's not listening to this if he uh, comes across our website. But uh, here the Lord is proclaiming to Moses his name. Verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished now I don't know about you but when I read that that sounds contradictory to me did it to you God is forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished how can he do both those things is he schizophrenic or kind of mixed up? How can you forgive wickedness and yet not leave the guilty unpunished? Well, if we're going to understand the God of the Bible rather than a God that we make up, we're going to have to grasp what this passage is saying. This is God, after all, declaring his own name. How can God forgive wickedness and punish the guilty? I think the first thing to notice about these verses is that any view of God which says that God is miserable and that God just loves to condemn people cannot possibly be accurate. Here God speaks, he's almost stretching language to declare his compassion, his kindness, his grace, his love and faithfulness. God is holy and he will punish sin. It is a great problem and yet he is faithful to all his promises. This is a great paradox, isn't it? How can both things be true? It's right there, isn't it? The problem of human guilt and failure and the promise of faithfulness and grace. How can those two things be reconciled? Well, there are some clues in what we've been looking at before Christmas in the Old Testament prophets, aren't there? We've seen that God made many promises all the way through the Old Testament about a promised Messiah. 
There were many references to this Messiah being a great and mighty king like David, killed Goliath. One who would restore the glorious history of the nation of Israel. Yet there were also many references which weren't so popular to a kind of suffering servant who would be rejected and killed. And it's not really until Jesus comes onto the scene that we realise how both things are fulfilled in him. He is a mighty king and the suffering servant. The lion and the lamb at the same time. The son of God, the mighty Lord, the creator, the holy one, the king comes and enters the human race. The Lord of glory grows as an embryo in Mary's womb. And he's born into the human race. It's amazing, isn't it, that he enters the very nation that he has spent years preparing for this moment. And he's born a Jewish baby. And he does it to fulfil the promise and deal with the problem. How can God punish the wicked and forgive the sinner? He does it by sending Jesus to take our place. Jesus is punished on the cross so that you and I could go free. And his amazing faithfulness is seen in Jesus coming to fulfil every single one of God's promises. Did God ever make a promise that he didn't fulfil? All down the years of history, God has never wavered from his intention to send a saviour, a king, a redeemer. And he gradually worked it all out so that Jesus would ultimately take centre stage and solve the riddle of Exodus 34. God is a faithful God. Fourthly, God, the God of the Bible, is a loving God. This is closely tied to the idea of faithfulness, isn't it? God calls people to himself. and We've seen, how can he do this when we're sinners? The answer's found in Jesus, isn't it? I've told you before, I remember as a teenager going on a Christian camp and there was a Scottish evangelist there called Tom Bathgate and uh, every day we used to learn a memory verse and there was one, one particular day that was 1 John chapter 3 verse 16 this is how we know what love is Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and I can remember Tom Bathgate having a shave in the toilets at the morning in his Scottish accent this is how we know what love is and I've never forgotten that verse I can hear him saying it while he's having a shave in the bathroom the toilet, the communal dorm thing This is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ comes into the world as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. When you think about the cross, it is amazing, isn't it? It is like all of the attributes of God that we've been thinking about zoom in and find their fulfilment on that hill outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Is God holy? Yes, he is. Will he punish sin and uphold righteousness? Yes, he will. But is he loving? Yes, he is. The cross shows at the same time that God is both serious about sin and he's not morally indifferent to it. Sin is bad, it brings death. But the cross also shows that God is kind and full of love. 
for those who will trust him. And when you add all these things together, it seems clear that God isn't just saving individual people. What God is doing in history is recreating a race of people, almost like a new nation. That transcends all other cultural boundaries. We sang about it in the song there, the last verse. From every tribe and nation you are calling sinners home. God is creating and calling to himself a corporate people. He's the creator, he is holy, he is faithful, he's loving. And all of this is corporate, not individualistic. I want to ask you then about your big story. How can you be part of God's people? What do you do to be included in that vast number? Do you sign a card? Do you register some decision? Raise your hand in a meeting somewhere? Pray a prayer of commitment? Find a church and attend it? Clean up your life or do some other noble thing? No. All of this begins with God, doesn't it? The way into this great, corporate, amazing group of blood-bought people is to believe in who God is. And to believe in Jesus Christ, his son that he sent into the world. This God is a God of incredible love. A love that will cleanse you from every stain of selfishness and sin. This is a love that gives you his righteousness. In short, Jesus gives you his very self. Do you feel in awe of God's kindness? The Lord of glory gives himself to you. Sinful rebels like us. What an amazing gospel. The way into this corporate group of blood-bought people is to believe in the Lord Jesus. Lastly, the God of the Bible is the sovereign God in some ways there's nothing worse in life than disappointment when someone promises so much and then lets you down it's true in relationships yesterday we had a little prayer meeting at Christine's house and I was just driving home wondering what sickness I was going to find at home And uh, there just happened to be one of the kids' CDs on Rebecca Ferguson, I think was the X Factor runner-up. Scouser as well. And as I was driving home from the prayer meeting, these were the words that came on the CD. The fallen empires, the shattered glass, the wicked echoes of my past, I've seen it all before, and that's why I'm asking, will you still be here tomorrow? Or will you leave in the dead of night? So your waves don't crash around me. I'm staying one step ahead of the tide. Will you leave me lost in my shadows? Or will you pull me into your light? I think all of those songs have got a bit of an angst in them. But as I'm listening to that on the way home, I'm thinking, thank God that he is sovereign. When you really put your hope into someone or something and you are badly let down, 
what happens is that you reduce your hopes to protect yourself from being hurt again, don't you? The sovereignty of God is linked to his faithfulness in this sense. Will he keep his word to you? Can he keep his word to you? The last book in the Bible is Revelation. And it wasn't written by someone who was on top of the world feeling grand, as the Irish say. He was at rock bottom. John, an old guy, dependent, imprisoned, exiled. What hope had he if life is meaningless? And yet he knew Christ and he was given a glimpse of future hope that far exceeded even his imagination. The prospect of God restoring heaven and earth and God himself living with all his varied people again in harmony and in purpose. The joy of knowing that evil has finally been crushed and that the future is untainted by sorrow or pain or grief or evil. John, who wrote this great book, was saying that this world is not all there is and it won't always be like this. How did he know? Well, God revealed himself to him. And how could he believe? Because God is the creator, he is holy, he is faithful, he is loving, but most of all, he is the sovereign Lord. John could lift up his feeble head and worship such a God. This was his waiting time. But in this valley of tears, he was able to cling to the fact that God is the king. Not Caesar, not culture, not men or devils, but the Lord God is king. Neither the present or the future is hanging delicately in the balance, waiting for one side or the other to give a decisive knockout punch. The Lord God is sovereign. He always has been, he always is, and he always will be over this broken, sin-polluted world. No one has and no one can knock him off his throne. He's not absent or weak or out of touch. He hasn't gone on holiday. We're not theists who believe that God has kind of created the world, wound it up and then gone away and left it all running. This is intensely practical. Some of you grieve. Some of you will be confused and anxious. Jesus said that not even a sparrow falls from a tree without his heavenly father knowing. Trouble does not mean that God is absent. Mark Dever says, disappointments have their purpose and the ruins of our cherished plans are often the steps to finding the true God and the good that he has for us. That is a great quote. How can we trust the Lord as a church family if we don't believe that he is the Lord? And how can I lead you if I don't believe this? This is our great joy and privilege, isn't it? To seek the Lord and to trust him together, corporately, as his blood-bought people. Will he fail us? 
Does he care for us? Is he able to lead us and guide us? Emma read to us beautifully earlier from Psalm 100. Listen to it again. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Why? For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Amen. (laughs) What makes a healthy church? You cannot guess at what God is like. You can't make him whatever you want him to be. You can't believe whatever you like and think that that makes it true. The crucial thing is God's self-revelation across the whole of the Bible and across the whole of human history. Understanding how God has revealed himself and trusting him, looking back to what he's done and trusting him for what he will do. In many ways, we are at our most vulnerable when we think that we are fine. We need to realise, don't we, that God would be entirely right to condemn us forever. And we need to know that God offers us us his amazing grace through Jesus, his beloved Son. Jesus Christ, our Saviour, our hope. This is the great God of the Bible. Creating, holy, faithful, loving and sovereign. You can trust him because he is all these things. The question is, will ye? Will ye? Amen. Oh,